0: listening to EE Entrepreneurs, where we meet the engineers who turn their passions into business ventures with innovations that benefit people and the planet. Hi, I'm Amy Kalnaskis, editor with EE World Online. Since the 1980s, researchers have been aggressively studying alternative and risk-free ways of detecting coronary artery disease, or CAD, That's when the arteries that supply blood to the heart muscle become hardened and narrowed. They're looking for ways that are less expensive and simpler to perform than the traditional modalities, including an electrocardiogram or ECG, echocardiogram, stress tests, angiograms, or heart scans. The studies are resource investments worthwhile on many levels, not the least of which is the goal of lowering the mortality rate from heart disease. 30% 30% worldwide, according to the World Health Organization, and the number one killer of American men and women. In today's podcast, we meet Dr. Marie Johnson, CEO and founder of AUM Cardiovascular, also pronounced Ohm. and don't confuse that with the SI unit of electrical impedance or electrical resistance, looks nothing like it. She's the inventor of a non-invasive, radiation-free, fast, and portable tool called Cadence that aids in the assessment of sounds associated with clinically significant coronary artery obstruction, congestive heart failure, and heart valve abnormalities. The acoustic ECG device uses high-fidelity sensors, embedded software, Bluetooth, digital signal processing, AI, machine learning, advanced analytics, as well as secure connectivity from AT&T. While the development of traditional non-invasive imaging techniques have helped with the detection of patients with known or suspected coronary artery disease, only 20% of CAD cases are diagnosed prior to a heart attack. The lack of symptoms in and the apparent health of many CAD patients creates a serious deception when it comes to detection. As was the case for Dr. Johnson's 41-year-old husband, whose unexpected death from coronary artery disease led this female engineer, entrepreneur, and mother of two down a path of inspiration and innovation. So, Marie, you could tell us a little bit about your background and... What inspired your innovation and, and what motivates you? I understand you're a fourth-generation General Motors employee, so I'm curious, like, did you want to be an engineer when you grew up?
1: Well, thanks, Amy, and I'm happy to um, tell you about my background. grew up in the Rust Belt, and as you mentioned before, I was a fourth-generation General Motors employee, and engineering was really my only option. Um, I was surrounded by terrific engineers and folks who were in manufacturing, and it was, I think, the best job in the area. I um, went to the Institute in Flint, Michigan. It's now called Kettering. It was a wonderful place to get my initial engineering education because we were trained by ex-General Motors uh, employees. I did my mechanical engineering work and moved different plants within the component parts, General Motors divisions. And I always say I probably learned more about life and about engineering during those 12 years than I than I have any time after that. And for GM and being in that particular environment really helped me um, as I moved forward in my graduate studies and then starting a company and getting a product up and ready to launch commercially. I um, got married when General Motors. And six months after we married, my husband announced that he wanted to go to seminary and come home. And uh, home for him was Minnesota. And I couldn't believe that I actually was willing to move here. But it's, it's been wonderful for about the past 25 years. When I came here, I was working for a service parts operations, which is also a General Motors division. And it's really a big warehouse that services all of the dealerships. I guess, this kind of upper Midwest area. Um, as soon as I finished um, equipping this warehouse with just about any technical piece of equipment that you could, <laughs> I, I'm to leave. Yeah, I mean, we were putting, I learned lots about automated doors and loops in, in the floor. And, you know, I mean, it was just unbelievable. Lots <laughs> a lot a useful, of useful useful
0: information for, for you as you go <laughs> forward in your own uh, company. Yeah, thank you. Continue.
1: Uh, yeah, it, it, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, I went to grad school at the University of Minnesota and worked in the orthopedics field, developed a uh, hip replacement and working in acetabular cup uh, design for patients who were going to have revision. It was a really interesting project and we did get patents on that and I, I believe they're starting a company now. Went on and did a PhD and I was a 3M scholar, which was awfully nice because they trained me not only... Uh, Development of acoustic stethoscopes, but also I learned a lot about interviewing physicians and um, just listening to the voice of the customer um, when it came to my came to my engineering. In
0: 2009, 3M established merit and need-based scholarships at the University of Minnesota's College of Science and Engineering, or CSE, and is currently CSE's largest corporate donor. Researchers and scholars at CSE are focused on developing new forms of environment-friendly energy, designing new medical devices, improving digital and electronic technologies, and developing a strong national infrastructure. The college has collaborations with the University of Minnesota's Medical School, locally based companies such as 3M and Medtronic, as well as universities around the globe. CSE oversees or is part of dozens of interdisciplinary research centers including the Institute for Engineering in Medicine and the Minnesota Nano Center. Science and Engineering faculty and alumni are behind some of the most innovative breakthroughs, from the retractable seatbelt and the black box flight recorder to the supercomputer and the first heart pacemakers. Most recently, 3M supported CSE's Innovation Lab, that's aimed at college freshmen and designed to help develop the next generation of engineers.
1: We developed a new style stethoscope. It was a computerized, um, unit. It allowed physicians to increase the volume. And so it was really nice for people who had hearing issues. It allowed for these data files, acoustic data files to be stored and then uploaded via, um, infrared, which was, which is a really cool kind of technique for data transfer, um, right. wirelessly. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to work on that too. Um, as I was working on my PhD, I um, about nine months into my my project, I went into a sudden cardiac event. It was one hundred percent surprise. As far as I knew, he was asymptomatic. Um, he was forty one years old, six foot two, one hundred and eighty pounds, and what I felt was really, you know, the. Um, we had a four year old daughter and a seven week old son. And um, I, I had to make a decision, which was, do I continue on get my PhD or do I get a job? And so I just uh, hunker down, and I finished up my PhD. What was I I forgot to mention um, in the beginning um, of working on my my dissertation? I had to learn how to use a stethoscope, right? So my husband acted as my test subject, Okay. and um, so I collected lots of data from him, um, not knowing that there was anything wrong with his heart. And so after he died, I knew that it wasn't by accident and that there was a purpose behind this. I I do believe in God, and I believe that I have a purpose in my life, and I I believe this is one of the purposes that I have in addition to, to raising good kids. Anyway... I collected from him and did um, data mining, and so I'm sure that a lot of your listeners will be very aware of that because it's really a hot topic now. And was able to extract figures that I thought were associated with what killed him, which was blockage in his coronary vessels.
0: Coronaries are the vessels that vascularize the heart, and Marie's husband had 99% blockage in three of the coronary vessels. As I mentioned in my introduction, coronary artery disease is the result of clogged vessels, and these can develop over many years and remain undetected until the blockages are severe and life-threatening, progressing rapidly to an abrupt closure of the artery with potentially fatal consequences. This lack of signs or symptoms is referred to as silent CHD. And for approximately 18% of patients, sudden death may be the initial sign of coronary heart disease, for many others, the sign is often a heart attack, heart failure, or an arrhythmia, which is an irregular heartbeat. And Marie, how are these artery blockages normally detected? I think they, they were left anterior descending, you said. So,
1: they are asymptomatic. They don't detect them. It's mm. usually just um they'll take cholesterol um, screens and then use that kind of as a proxy for um, a probability that a patient might. A blockage. What's interesting, what most people don't realize is that there are studies that show that out of 10 people who would die from a sudden event, only three have had elevated cholesterol levels. Wow. And so, that's right. So, they would use, yes, I mean, and that's what we all are led to believe. So, um, if you are symptomatic, which means you have chest pain or shortness of breath, your doctor will oftentimes send you for a treadmill. Um, something that you'll find shocking about that particular modality is that it's 67% sensitive, which means that clinicians miss disease 33% of the time, um, and that it's 72% specific. I, I want to, Amy, I want to make sure that I include these terms because your listeners, I suspect, are very savvy when it comes to um, when it comes to uh, measurements. 72% specific what they would call normal people diseased um, 20% of the time. So
0: then you, um, how did you find, how did you discover these frequencies? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, Absolutely. So part of
1: my work was identification of um, abnormal heart sounds. And so that implies issues with um, the heart valves or with ventricular compliance issues in the heart. And so I had collected radiogram data, and then I also collected stethoscope data. And along the way, some of these patients had angiograms. And so angiogram is considered the gold standard for characterization of those coronary So I took the data that I had and found those patients who had coronary angiograms and put it together. And within the 100 to 1000 hertz frequency bands, there were some frequencies that emerged. There's literature from 1967. Um, there was a clinical case study by a guy named William Dock. He described this guy who came into um, a VA, uh, Long Island, and this guy had severe hypertension and this odd sound. You no, know, they did a stethoscope exam. They treated his severe hypertension and sent him home. And two weeks later, he came back and I unfortunately died um, at the hospital, and they discovered that he had blockage in his left anterior descending coronary artery, which is the one they mentioned before. It's um, considered the widow maker, and um, cardiologists hate that term, but he he had blockage in that, and so they associated that sound. And then, interestingly, there's a lot of literature that came out of Dartmouth and Rutgers, some guys who did more engineering-based work um, on the Issue, and that was identification of uh, coronary blockage using acoustics.
0: The Rutgers University study Dr. Johnson refers to regarding the non-invasive acoustical detection of coronary artery disease was a comparative study of signal processing methods where the researchers analyzed recordings of diastolic heart sound segments by using four signal processing techniques in order to detect such sounds. The fast Fourier transform, the autoregressive, the autoregressive moving average and the minimum norm, or eigenvector method. The research was inspired by previous studies that indicated heart sounds may contain information useful in the detection of blocked coronary arteries because during diastole, or the phase of the heartbeat when the heart muscle relaxes and allows the chambers to fill with blood, and blood flow is maximum, it was believed that the sounds associated with that turbulent blood through partially blocked coronary arteries should be detectable. I right, to figure out what happened, but I'm just curious, like what how did you go on from there? And then if you could talk about the actual tool that you developed and the system that you developed.
1: So uh, I finished my PhD and then did with uh, 3M folks. Um, and by the way, I just want to say they were so wonderful um, during that time frame, very supportive, and um, I can't be more um, grateful. I went to Polytechnico in Turn, Italy, for a postdoc and studied hemodynamics and arterial elasticity. Ended up doing a third postdoc out at Stanford and um, with the biodesign folks. And so they teach um, engineering how to translate inventions into commercial products. And so that was really the way that it happened. But my motivation comes from God. I knew that I was called to do this. And when you feel so compelled, it it, you you can't do anything else other than that, and nothing else makes sense. And so um, I say that there was no option.
0: Yeah, I've I've read that you said that you um, uh, heard the voice of God, and I I was wondering what that voice said to you. And just move forward and figure this out and... No, I'll, t- I'll tell you what the voice said. Oh, please. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so
1: it, it's three o'clock in the morning. I was sitting in front of my computer screen. The dark, and the kids were sleeping. And I was looking at this data. And if you could have seen the number of times that I just turned this data. And I actually, my PhD ended up changing my mind. Because I was doing so much work, and uh, what I heard was, "There it is," and it was the uh, frequencies, and that was the key, right? I mean, that was really like the golden link to everything that I was working on, and so.
0: That's that's a pretty strong voice. <laughs> <laughs> so then, um, could you just walk us through maybe like what what's actually if you were just to just do a teardown on the product? I understand it's it's handheld. I saw pictures online, and it just looks incredibly elegant and simple. Um, I'm sure it's not the latter, <laughs> but if you could tell our engineering audience a little bit more of the the technical specs, that obviously,
1: yes, I, I would love to. Um, so it is an acoustic based device. Um, we use a very high fidelity uh, microphone, and we actually even sort it so that. Um, just get the highest quality and the tightest control on this microphone. We also have ECG sensors, and so this is very special because we um, we can segment the cardiac cycle. And so, engineers, we, it just gives us the ability to label label those signals. We have some pretty serious denoising software um, and algorithms that we've developed internally. The the device has embedded software, and so designed Mm. and we worked uh, hard to provide feedback to the users so we let them know if they're pressing too hard if the tilt and application of the handheld is giving sound data we um, have a a very slick oled that that directs the the user um to, to know that they're they're in the right place and they're pressing you know pressing um correctly in terms and, um, we do countdown feedback. In addition to that, we have Bluetooth upload. And so the Bluetooth, um, transfers the data to a Samsung tablet. We can use any, really. The Samsung tablet is equipped with really, really cool technology. Um, we are working with, um, AT&T folks. Um, they have provided us with assistance on development. To, to make it really clean and efficient. Um, and we've got this cellular connection that allows the the tablet and the system to be used anywhere in the world where we can access a cell phone tower. Now, what's important about it implies that it's telemedicine enabled. Mm. So conceivably, proper training, just about anybody will be able to perform this test. Another thing that's, I think, important is that in remote areas where individuals to nuclear stress test equipment. They have access to equipment that can collect data that would be similar to a nuclear stress test in terms of performance. Okay. We're taking all of the equipment, um, that expensive $10 million dollar equipment, radiation, three to five hours of testing, IVs, injections, you know, special readers. We we take on all the technicians, exercise, no pharmaceutical. In this little passive handheld device that collects acoustic data and ECG data.
0: Well, you've just um, we also a lot of stress from patients and doctors right there. <laughs> that laundry list that you just said, I'm like, it was stressing to it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, well and for patients, I mean all they have to do is lie on their back and we uh-huh. collect eight minutes of data from their chest. They breathe normally. It's very simple, very comfortable. When I'm sh- They use a picture from a spa experience because that's really what it's like. I mean, it's very relaxing. People fall asleep and a lot of great experience, I think, and and users love it too. Um, We transmit that cell back to our our servers, which have artificial intelligence that has been built on supervised learning uh, techniques. And we assess that data and then create reports. Raw data and the reports back to the user via that um, same cell connection, and we um, send it to the tablet, and then we also send it to a centralized email so that the clinics can electronic health
0: records. Well, you must have a, a rather diverse staff. Like some of the the um, technology you're talking about, it sounds like you've got software programmers, you have product designers, you have electronics engineers. Medical engineers, would that be a correct assessment? What is your what is your staff like?
1: Right. So um, machine learning people, um, <laughs> folks that are mechanical engineers, we've got digital signal processing operation It's kind of where we're putting a lot of our time. We ended up using a consumer products design firm to do our design. I mean you mentioned that it was um you know it was pretty cool and we, we agree with that. Um then we've got of course support people to sell product, and so there's a lot of um, details associated with, with orders and collecting money and all of that. So.
0: What about, and I'm sure I get asked this all the time when you do interviews, but what about regulations, federal regulations, and do you have, do you have to go through a lot of paperwork to get the, these, uh, I'll confess my ignorance when it comes to a lot of the specifications, but I would assume that would take up a huge chunk of your but anyway, if it, what, where is that process for you right now? Are you already <laughs> went past it, or is it ongoing? Or Okay, so
1: um, you heard me chuckle a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of paperwork. And I had someone a number of years ago tell me that it's not actually a physical device. It's the paperwork. Mm. So um, we are ISO 13485 certified, and have a really terrific um, electronic quality system that we use. Um, we're recertified by our notification weeks ago, Um, we have a CE mark, and we're approved to sell in Canada, and and we're registered in Australia and a couple other countries that are not part of the EU. Um, We can sell in, I guess, just about all of the countries in the EU now. But I would say about, I would say, eight million dollars so far um, seeking FDA approval. and that includes all of our clinical studies, and so that's we've tested on one thousand three hundred and fifty patients to date, and. Just looking at this today, uh, six clinical studies. We submitted to FDA and we expect to have approval within a month.
0: We're so excited. And we think we may have some questions. (laughs) Thank you. It's been... It sounds like it. I mean, on one hand, I'm glad that there's so much oversight. But on the other hand, I wonder if it doesn't stifle innovation sometimes. Do you feel like that? is correct when it comes to that type of thing? Or do you just feel like you really have to go through a lot of hoops that maybe perhaps aren't necessary? <laughs>
1: it's maddening. Um, if as regulations change, we have to re those regulations. And so a clinical study, our study took four years. And so over those four years, things keep changing. Mm-hmm. And so what was relevant, you know, four years ago, we had to completely redo and it's so time-consuming and then even getting scheduled into the laboratories can be challenging I mean we've had to redo biocompatibility testing packaging testing and so um, it, it takes up a considerable and in comparison to General Motors I mean I, I often think about this that's a highly regulated industry as yes. well um, I think in medical devices it's very interesting and I think your engineers um, engineer uh, listeners will Learn that if you're working in the automotive industry, moving into manufacturing for medical devices would be a piece of cake for for them, um, because it's just you know I remember being and this is not manufacturing, but I remember being watching an orthopedic surgeon do a hip replacement, and they use a string to measure to measure leg length, and so if you look at the literature, they talk about how those leg lengths are probably one of the, you know, sort of biggest complications and it's because they use a piece of string. It's unbelievable.
0: <laughs> well, maybe I, I can see it now. I've got like half of our audience who are automotive engineers looking because <laughs> <laughs> they want to get away from AEC oh, right. or <laughs> standards, you know, uh, so just uh, one, one or two final questions here, Marie. Um, you did mention that um, 3M was a big help when it came to, you know, learning how to to market, and then I think you said you, some of the work you did at Stanford as well. You learned quite a bit there. I'm sensing you've that's that's helped you um, in your training for to be an entrepreneur. But I'm also curious as, as a woman in the field, in this face any singular challenges? And then you mentioned you have two young children, so I ah, don't know how you did it. So, how do you well, I do because <laughs> you heard the voice of God, which I completely respect. So, how do you feel this has prepared you for life as an engineer? ask this question very often because I'm mostly interviewing men. So um, I'm just curious. I, I mean, I know personally, sometimes it makes this work look really easy when I think about two teenage daughters I had 10 years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> how, do, how do you feel if, if it has, has prepared you for life as an entrepreneur?
1: So um, I, I will step back to my general mother's days. Um, I started working for them when I was 18 and um, I don't think it's a very easy environment to be 18 and a female, especially back in the early eighties. Yeah. So um, that, I don't know. I think I got a thick skin just from the folks there and don't get me wrong. I mean, they, they trained me a lot, but I remember, I remember people, you know, giving me crib cards to go and pick up, you know, product from a centralized crib at um, the break division. And I, and they had sent me to go get a can of vacuum, oh. you know, I mean, just stuff like that where, you know, they're just kind of messing with you. Um, but I, I would say, I, I won't tell you the stories, but I, I have some good ones just where you know, people are very candid um, about their experience with female entrepreneurs. Um, raising money has really not been that difficult because people, I think, can see the, the clinical need and they can. And I think that's important. And also, I put my own money into this. Um, I really believe in this product. When it comes to the children, so my my daughter just graduated from high school, and she's going to be an engineer. yes, <laughs> yeah, thank you. I feel really good. Yes, about another that. female and, engineer. <laughs> <laughs> she's about as nerdy as I am too. You know what? They they're just. I I know when they're little, you you can't say this, but I felt this they were just great human beings and they they enjoyed the. you know it was just I think it was exciting for them a lot you know throughout this process they've been a part of it I've tested them you know they've worked here at the company I mean they don't do glamorous things you know they do testing product testing and they'll do some pretty basic programming or you know filing which is (laughs) where everybody starts in my family it was, uh, you know, I think the most challenging aspect of it was when my daughter was in first grade, and it, 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 this is just, you know, I guess probably just a small example, but we were living in Italy, an Italian public school, and it was just so awful for her. It, it was difficult because she didn't know Italian. It was just a different culture for her. Um, I remember she cried every day, mm. every time I would take her to school, and that was, that was really hard and um I mean, I think it's made her stronger now and when she looks back at it, she still hates olive oil but she um Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> she claims they put olive oil on everything, which I think for her. I think when you're in first grade, maybe that was a little shocking. But um that that was hard I think as a mom, just to, to have to drop her off every day and um see her cry. So but besides that, it's been an adventure I think for the whole family.
0: Um, You're quite an inspiration for them. So before I let you go, I do want to ask, um, so I mentioned in my intro that uh, the name of your company, and I wanted to say it, like, read it like an acronym, AUM Cardiovascular, but I believe there's a meaning to it and there's a way to pronounce it that I'm not. So could you just share that with us before we we sign off?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if people are interested in investing, the acronym is AUM, as you mentioned, and that's Assets we're really good at managing assets but the real um, the real name is Om, and so Om is the ancient Sanskrit syllable and it's um, humming and so um, it's all sounds in all languages and what we say is that it's the universal sound that connects all of us as human beings and it's the universal sound associated with um, coronary disease
0: well that's that's perfect, perfect. Well, Dr. Marie Johnson, I want to thank you very much. This is fantastic and uh, very inspirational. And congratulations again—one month away from from the certification. And uh, mm-hmm. congratulations on your high school graduate. And perhaps mm-hmm. I'll be interviewing her one day. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Very great. Thanks so much. Thank right. you. We were speaking with Dr. Marie Johnson, CEO of Ohm Cardiovascular, Inc. You can find out more about Ohm on our podcast page and by visiting www.aumcardiovascular.com. By the way, just this week on August 8th, Ohm Cardiovascular did indeed receive that coveted FDA approval for their CAD-ENS reusable, non-invasive, radiation-free handheld device. Again, congrats to Dr. Johnson and her team. You are listening to E.E. Entrepreneurs from E.E. World Online and WTWH Media. Join me as we uncover the human stories behind the engineering successes that make a difference.